I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording on today, the Ugambe people of the Bunjalung Nation. I extend my respect to their elders past, present and emerging and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander listeners that we have joining us today. Sovereignty has never been ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So I would literally just paddle all day, every day. And night. And, and night as well. And again, when that moon came out, I could actually see and I could see islands. Bonnie Hancock is an incredible human, a professional Ironwoman at just 17. She competed in nine Nutrigrain Ironwoman series and represented Australia, which in and of itself is remarkable, before going on to become a qualified nutritionist and coach for high-performance athletes. Perhaps most impressive is that she recently became the fastest person to paddle a surf ski nearly 13,000 kilometres around the Australian coastline. Now, you're going to hear about all the crazy details today, but just let that soak in. She paddled a surf ski nonstop with her own two arms around the entire coastline of Australia. Guys, this is Ned Brockman on steroids. She took eight months and broke the previous world record by over two months. Bonnie is such an extremely kind, tenacious and tough human, both physically and mentally. You'll hear about the days she spent 500 kilometres out to sea, her times paddling through croc-infested waters and the Great Australian Bite, and even having to be hospitalised for malnutrition, losing eight kilos in two weeks due to severe seasickness. Some of the footage on her Instagram honestly has to be seen to be believed, and this chat is not for the faint-hearted. I feel so grateful to have spent time hearing about Bonnie's journey and super inspired to tackle my own sporting challenges. Enjoy my chat with Bonnie Hancock. This is Life Chats, deep and meaningful conversations with friends and strangers. Thank you for being here. Welcome Thank to Life Chat. Amazing. You've got a good view of Kira Beach. <laughs> Thank you. I think I'll have to move up here maybe, but um, I start the podcast usually by asking people, you know, what they're loving about their life at the moment, because we do talk about life a lot. Mm. So is there anything that you're particularly grateful for or that you're loving in your life? Well, we were just talking about documentaries before and we're actually in the middle of the process of making the documentary. So exciting. Oh, so exciting. So we've got an amazing cinematographer and Jack Lawrence, um, He's an ex-Red Bull cinematographer and he's just incredible. So he's going through 254 days of footage and, you know, sifting through and we're kind of pulling out what sort of narrative we want from that. And I've just finished the book as well. So hopefully, um, you know, it's just in the pitching stage at the moment with the publishers. So that'll all be hopefully started next year that those projects will come out. I'm sure we'll get into it, but what has the process been like for you reflecting on it after the fact? Do you find that quite challenging or has it been cathartic in a way? Very cathartic. I think that's an amazing word for it. Definitely. Like, and I kind of, it probably went in a different direction to what I thought it would be and how I decided to finish the book. And I know we'll talk about that today, but I actually learned so much about myself and I Mm. realized that the paddle was never about a record after all. And it was about everything I learned and almost sending my life in a bit of a different trajectory. So the writing process is about five months. I had to go back through all the footage, talk to my crewmates, you know, listen to journal entries and things. And Mm. yeah, there were things that you sort of, you know, 
pushed down throughout the paddle, the repressed pain, probably exactly yeah. exactly how hard it was. So to relive that and to watch the footage from that other perspective, it was crazy. And I saw how hard some of the parts really were that I'd not forgotten, but yeah, repressed. Yeah, you would have to, to kind of get through and survive during the day. And I know Ned Brockman's spoken a lot about this, how he's struggled to reflect on it after the fact. And he kind of didn't want to post to social media because words just can't seem to do it justice Mm -hmm. what you've been through. Were you journaling throughout the fact or doing voice notes or kind of Mm -hmm. just when you felt like it recording where you were at? A bit of both. So at the start, I was really reluctant to do it. And my crewmates were saying, we're making a doco. You have to do it. Get on the GoPro. But then what happened was one of my crewmates, Blake, started writing for me. So my Mm -hmm. hands were so bad throughout the paddle, I actually couldn't write with a pen. Um, I couldn't open water bottle caps. It it was awful. And little things like that, I look back and go, oh my gosh, you kind of, it becomes very normalised, you know. But Yeah, so they were writing the journal for me. I was dictating to them. When my hands came right about halfway through, I started writing these journal entries. Um, There's a bit of a mix. There's voice notes, Mm -hmm. GoPro, you know, even revisiting the strata um, data sort of takes me back. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, through the Kimberley, I was going 160 in 24 hours, 120 in 24, like back to back to back. And by the end, I broke out in huge rashes And that's the other thing. I know I'm jumping ahead, but the salt water is so bad for your skin Mm -hmm. to be in. There were all these problems that popped up that I never expected. I loved watching your reel. I think like the letter that you wrote to yourself and saying, if I knew that this is what I was going to go through, would I still have done it? Yes, probably. But like, I'm glad I didn't know because yeah, if you knew the pain and the suffering and the rashes and all of it, your hands, you probably would have had a lot of fear going into it. So it might've been a good thing that you didn't know that that's what was to come. Definitely. And people always say, you know, do you hope someone does like breaks a record one? I say, absolutely. And I love that I've been a part of that in sort of setting that bar a bit higher. Mm. I absolutely hope someone's has a crack at it and is successful. But I sort of wrestle with the fact, do I tell them everything? Because I'm so glad I was naive to the Mm. fact in how hard it was to be at sea for a couple of weeks with no anchorages and to lose eight kilos in two weeks from vomiting and all of that. I had no idea that was coming. So, you know, I would give them every single tip and trick I learned. But to some degree, you want to sort of keep in the dark about a few things, I think. Totally. Yeah, some of it's horrific. I'm keen to get into the details if you're able to talk about it. Mm -hmm. But first, maybe let's rewind a little bit. Mm -hmm. Were you always a super sporty kid? Like I'm wondering if this is something that potentially without you even realising you were training for your whole life or did this come later in life for you? I think my whole life led to the paddle without me realising it. It wasn't something I grew up wanting to do. Mm -hmm. I, I not long ago looked at a little note I wrote to myself. I think I was 12 and I wrote, when I grow up, I want to be an Olympian. And wow. if I can't be an Olympian, I want to be an iron woman. <laughs> and I also want to be a nutritionist. Oh, wow. And I ended up as an iron woman and a dietitian. Mm-hmm. So I was not far off and get the Olympic thing. Mm-hmm. But you got a world record. So pretty got a world close. record. But I remember at 10 years old when mum wanted to put me in a dress for this awards mm-hmm. night, I'd won some award for surf life saving. And I kicked and screamed, not wanting to put this dress on. I was the biggest tomboy Mm -hmm. joy to me was being out on my bike being in the surf with my sisters chasing my cousins around the farm at our uncle's farm and I just loved sport I loved watching sport I loved participating in sport I loved everything about it and that feeling of sharing that joy with your Mm. teammates too I loved the individual part and pushing myself but my favorite part was always the relays and as I got older that iron woman racing it becomes very much a solo sport you are in a team environment so 
within training, but when your foot on is on the line, you're against your training mate. So I think that's that part I sometimes wish I had more of. And that's the part I loved about the paddle was mm-hmm. having a team around me and working team. Cause I think you lift in ways in a whole different way when it's about others as well. Totally. And speaking of like competing against teammates, I know that you were competing against your sister at one point, like she was also an iron woman. So just give me a little bit of context around what that was like growing up. At what point did you kind of realize like, I want to go for this and I want to make this my life being a professional athlete and then what is the actual reality of training maybe as a teen or in your early 20s like to become an iron woman totally so I have a really specific memory at 12 years of age I probably went around the time I wrote that note yeah um watching the Meadowly Iron Woman on TV mm-hmm. it was on every Sunday on Wide World of Sports and I remember Carla Gilbert watching her run around she absolutely dominated she had the long blonde flowing hair <laughs> and the tan skin and I just loved Carla. I was absolutely obsessed and I looked at that and said, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. You know the saying, you can't be what you can't see. It is true. To some degree, obviously, people are pushing limits and that kind of thing. But when you see that and you envision yourself, as I envision myself moving up to the Gold Coast, training on Surface Paradise Beach like Carla Mm -hmm. and at 17, I did. I left home. I went to the Gold Coast with Sister Courtney. was 18. I was 17 we packed up everything we had and we moved out of home. And I remember ringing mum and saying, mum, how do I cook mints? And how do I clean the bench? You know, yeah. the first Nutrigrain trial was two months after I moved to the Gold Coast and I managed to make it through. Mm-hmm. And the trial was actually moved from the very big surf. It was supposed to be here on the Gold Coast at Kira. Yeah. And the cyclone swell came through because it was in January. Wow. So they moved the trial to Redcliffe, which is dead flat. It was mm-hmm. an absolute miracle for me because I'd only been on the ski a couple of times mm-hmm. and I managed to get through off of fitness. So I was super light. I could run the transitions mm-hmm. really fast. When Courtney and I both got through. I remember looking at that point scoreboard and seeing my name in seventh, but her name in second. And I had this moment, we're going to do this together. Mm -hmm. Everything we'd ever wanted that first season to be there together. And we got a lot of media and it was really positive at the start and sort of celebrating that we were both in it. As we started to do better and better as iron women, the sort of media headlines changed a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, When I beat Courtney in a race, I remember the headline was younger sister outshines, Mm. you know, older sister. I thought, that's not what I thought at all, you know. Is that um, ever how you felt that you were like in the shadows? I never felt that because the dynamic that Courtney and I had were best friends, Mm. exactly. But the media always wanted to create this story. They wanted to pit us against each other. And the truth is there are 18 other girls in that race. You've got to be 18 other girls to win. So, you know, looking back now, I think I was vulnerable to that. And sometimes you do start having that bit of doubt about yourself. You know, you'd come third and Mm. Courtney would win. And still the headline was all about your older sister and you're absolutely stoked for her. But it is hard when there's that sort of, other people are pitting you against mm. each other, not yourselves. So I think I had trouble with that for a little bit, but finally I realised actually how special it was to actually be doing this as a profession, totally. as a career. There are only 20 girls within that series and I had amazing people around me as well. But there were definitely times that you do doubt yourself and, to be honest, around my mid-20s I started what I call sort of taking shortcuts to try to win. Okay, um, what does that look like? So I got a lot of seconds, a lot of just misses off the podium and I thought, am I ever going to get that big? 
big win. Mm. I would win local carnivals against full fields of the same iron women that I'd then back up against in the professional series Mm -hmm. and not be able to just crack that win. On the day. You know, and a second place where it's just a wave is a difference or just off the podium. And I started essentially sneaking in extra sessions. I'd do running outside of the club sessions. Um, I started restricting my intake as well. You know, I thought body composition, I'll drop that a little Mm. bit. What I know now is underfueling, you know, with everything I know as a dietitian, which you can get away with for a certain amount of time. But, you know, if you continue to restrict your caloric intake, not give yourself enough carbohydrates, not give yourself enough iron, Mm. that's going to catch up with you. So, Eventually, I did lose quite a bit of weight. I was racing underweight. It did catch up with me. I got glandular fever. Oh, no. Um, One of the worst things an athlete can get, you know, other than... Because it knocks you out for not just, like, the two weeks that you're in bed, but it takes months to recover from. Months. And essentially, eventually, it sort of turned into a chronic fatigue. I had to step Mm. back from the sport for two years. Wow. So all of a sudden, in my mid-20s, everything I'd ever known you know, eight years living on the Gold Coast, pretty Mm. much the whole network I'd built was around sport. I'd met some friends at uni, but I only had limited time to spend with them because I was traveling and training and racing. So everything I ever knew was in sport. All of my self-worth was as an iron woman and how good I was at sport. And you constantly had that validation Mm. when you're, you know, one of the best in the country at what you're doing. You're surrounded by sort of Yes, people, people are sort of pumping you up. You've got a whole team who are backing you. All of a sudden I tell a story like the phone stopped ringing. Mm -hmm. Like literally in my life I had all of these people around me that kind of just dropped away and I was left with a couple of really good friends and family members but it forced me to reassess who I actually was and who else I was other than an ironman, which I didn't have that answer at the time. I hit a really low patch But in that two years, I started socialising away from sport. I finally had time to spend with those uni friends. I Mm. found all of these other interests that I had. I love travelling. I love comedy. You know, I love even just going to the cinema and live musicals and all sorts of things that I never had time for or didn't think I had time for. So that two years was the best thing that ever happened. And when I came back, I actually had my first big race win. Isn't that funny? Exactly. (laughs) You like had the rest and the reset and you came back stronger. A hundred percent. It was against a full field of professional Ironwomen. I was so happy off Mm. the water. I knew who I was and when I lined up on that line, I thought, I don't care if I come last, I'll be just as happy to walk away from here. And I never had that before. I put so much pressure on myself to win. So that had to happen in a way for me to find who I was other than an Iron Woman. Wow, it's really powerful and it's often a common like trajectory for a lot of professional athletes that they are so, it's their whole life and their whole world and there's been so much sacrifice. And as you said, you equate your achievements like with your self-worth. And I think there comes a point for many where it's like, what do I do now when I retire? But for you, that was kind of like a forced realisation a little bit earlier, it seems like. Absolutely. Mm. And when I did come back, I started racing the Ironman again. I had that big win. I was so stoked. I met my now husband. Um, All of these amazing things sort of fell into line. But after about a season of racing as Ironwoman, I sort of realised I'd done everything I wanted to do. And I'd always looked at ski paddling as just Mm. the ultimate in female strength and power and empowerment. Yeah. And I thought, I might give that a crack. Mm-hmm. And it had always been a weakness for me. When I was younger, I was very slight. So upper body-wise, I didn't have that strength. Yeah, It's very much about gym and conditioning and finding that strength and powering through the waves mm. on the ski. So 
I thought, okay, I'll give it a crack. Everyone said, why are you doing this? You know, the Iron Woman's what you're good at. I pretty soon realised that my strength is actually in the power and the mm. speed of the ski races. I've sort of trained that out of myself as an Iron Woman. So, yeah, I took up ski paddling after all that time. It's incredible how all the dots have, like, connected to lead you to where you are. And I know we're probably, like, we don't have the time to go into so all the details about, you know, you then became a nutritionist or a dietitian, um, but I'm keen to hear about you find your love for ski paddling. Was there, like, a formal retirement from being an iron woman or you just kind of started picking up the ski paddle as well how does that look when you're at that level for sure I sort of I told my coach sat down my coach and my club and and told them and again yeah initially I didn't get a lot of positive reaction Mm. I'd never proven myself as a ski paddler Mm -hmm. and I wrote down some really high goals I said you know I want to be on the podium at the Australian titles you know I'd never done that as an iron woman Mm. I was trying to do it the ski which is my my weakest leg people were sort of questioning why but I just had this gut feeling like it was something I wanted to do. And I think by that stage, I wasn't a people pleaser like I was when I was younger. I was mm-hmm, such mm-hmm, a people mm-hmm. pleaser that someone told me it wasn't the right thing to do. I probably would have changed my mind. I've been like that. Mm. Right. And I think as females, we can be particularly, totally you know, sort of grab, tend to be people pleasers, um, especially when we're younger. Especially if you're a high achiever too, or like a perfectionist and you, you're you so hard on yourself, you just want to do the best that you can do. Definitely. And I put so, yeah. a lot of my self-worth in that validation, Mm. that direct validation you get as an athlete. So the two years away, I learned to live without that Mm -hmm. constant validation. And so when it came time to change my mind and go down that path, I backed myself, I backed my gut feeling and it was the best thing I ever did. And at the end of that first season, I did get on the podium at the Australian titles. I got third place. Incredible. And I just realised, you know, following my gut and sort of moving away and taking not the done sort of Mm -hmm, thing mm -hmm. or the done path was the best thing ever and, uh, yeah, led to uh, a bit of a trip around Australia. (laughs) Just a little casual trip around the whole country. Let's get into that. So for those who aren't aware, you became the fastest person to paddle around the country. 12,500 kilometres took you 254 days, which is just over eight months. We speak about gut feeling or kind of intuition was that an instinctive idea that you, I believe you read a book about the woman who did this and was that like a light bulb moment of I need to do this or was it kind of like you slowly came around to the idea? Absolute light bulb moment. Wow. And I wonder whether it's practice being sort of, you know, tuned into that gut feeling mm. that by then again, like all the people please are sort of instincts or traits were kind of out the window that when I read this book, so it was mid-COVID, mm-hmm. I was mid-COVID in 2020, I went to Broadbeach Library, my local library, <laughs> I wandered around, massive nerd, I love reading. Me too. And I picked up three books and on the bottom of that pile was Fearless and it was about Freya Hofmeister. She's a German woman who paddled around in 2009. I'd never heard the story about a woman, first woman to paddle around Australia. She was chased by crocodiles and sharks. I was reading all of those stories but it was just this gut feeling like Mm -hmm. you have to do this. There were so many reasons why not to do it. First of all, it was over $200,000 on a rough calculation to have a support boat and skipper because it's so expensive. Yeah. I wanted to go mid-COVID where WA still hadn't opened their borders. They were shut for the whole year. (laughs) There was viruses moving around Mm. the whole country. You know, people were being blocked out of state. Even the Queensland, New South Wales border, you had to have the work sort of exemption. So it was just crazy to even think about. But 
I just, again, I followed my gut instinct and I told my husband and, you know, at the start he really questioned it. And I, I sort of say he just, he just went silent when I told him. He literally didn't know what to say. So it wasn't a no, it was just like, absolutely. What are we just doing? Scare. And, and I sort of answered for him. I said, I'll revisit it. Mm-hmm. And I did revisit it a couple of weeks later. And he said, you really want to do this? Hey, like you're going to do it. And I said, yeah, I am. He goes, I guess I better help you. <laughs> and, and I would not have been able to pull it off without mm. his help. We spent 18 months. We gave up everything we had. So I think, did you sell both cars? Sold the cars. Quit I had your job. Three clinics as a dietitian. I'd worked 10 years for, you know, to, to get those. I handed them over. Matt was working at the Southport Sharks. Again, mm. a position he'd worked his whole life for, head of high performance, gave that up to come with me. And I remember saying to him, I don't expect you to give that up. I would rather you stay. And he said, I'd never do that. I can't let you go without coming. And I'm eternally grateful for that because he's the sole reason we got across the WA border. He got that exemption for us. We were out at sea for, I think it was two months or so without reception. So he was actually on land for the eight months. Wow. He wasn't at sea. So we were spending a month apart, three weeks So you apart. wouldn't see him for weeks at a time? Weeks at a time. Wow. And there's actually no reception either, so not speak to wow. or anything. And I remember having this massive, chunky satellite phone trying to type <laughs> messages in. It takes like 15 minutes to send one message. Yeah. So it was a total lifestyle change. No mm. social media, no news, no access to family or friends. You just had to completely disconnect. I'm sure there's so many things that popped up along the way in terms of logistics that were just completely, you could not plan for. But how did you plan for it going into it? Like, was Matt aware of the kind of exemptions and all the things he would have to do? Or was that kind of being done on the fly and just realizing like, oh no, we're not going to be able to get through to here. We can't get petrol. Or What did that actually look like? A lot of it was on the fly Mm. because as we went, it turned out the WA border opened, but then it closed. So it opened for us before and we Mm -hmm. thought, right, we're going to go in December, 2021. That's when we took off. And then the WA border closes. We were making our way down Victoria. So the whole time I had this anxious feeling Mm. like, I will, if I'm stopped by a dislocated shoulder or a shark breaks my ski or something, I can almost handle that. But if an official stands Mm. there and doesn't let us through, we started looking into things like staying out so far that we were in international waters the whole way around and actually physically not coming to land. How far out from the the land is that? So I think it's five to 600 kilometres offshore um, and further in certain parts. So that was a reality we were going to have to face. And that's what we were looking at. And then finally, just before we got into WA, there was a little bit of a, a change where they were again letting locals back in and we applied for an exemption. We told them what we'd done. We Mm. said we've come all this way and we just got it over the line. But we had to stay out at sea for a couple of weeks isolating. But there were so, so many things. It was, you know, having a jet ski as a backup for the boat, having to use that in certain sections, finding where to camp, um, almost running out of food on the boat, you know, when it had taken longer than the the time we provisioned for. And, like, you were needing a lot of food. A lot of food. Like 10,000 calories a day, I think I read. 10,000 calories Mm. a day, um, more when it was cold because your body's trying to Mm. thermo regulate. I was bringing a lot of that up anyway. Yeah, so, we'll get into yeah, that. And putting 15 kilos on prior to the paddle. So mm. that in itself was, you know, you had to put vanity aside. It was really hard as an athlete. We kind of worked towards that racing composition. Um, and 
it was a totally different mindset and that's what saved me from hypothermia mm. was carrying that extra weight. So speaking of prep, I'm sure people ask you all the time, how did you train? But I'm very acutely aware you just cannot train for these things. Like there is no way you could possibly compound the kilometres that you would need for your body to adapt. But what were some of the things you did both from a nutrition side and physically just your training split? What were you doing leading into the race and how long did you plan for? Was it a six-month lead-in, a 12-month lead-in, um, yeah, what did that look like? It was mostly a six-month lead-in mm-hmm. and that was the time I gave myself to put that weight on and the time to be fit enough to start. It's not a lot of time. It's Six not months. a lot of time, is it? And I knew one thing was mm-hmm. in the past I'd had a few shoulder problems, nothing mm-hmm. serious. I thought I do not want to get to day one with pain, you know, inflamed bursa or, you know, something like a golf elbow or mm-hmm. on day one before you start. So I actually got the advice to undertrain. I spoke to some of the people who'd done it prior and one particular guy said, do not overtrain. Right. You've got to go into this underdone. He said it'll take about two months to condition to the load and it was about two months to condition. Wow. So the first day was 73 kilometres and I remember the end of that day sprawled out on the back deck in yeah. agony. I could barely speak to my mm-hmm. crew. I just remember gritting my teeth and it was my back. It was so bad. Just I can't even explain the pain. It's just like... I had a bolting disc for the last two months. Wow. Um, and, and you paddled through that. And was had to paddle through Gosh. that. But the pain was just like my back was almost breaking. Mm. So the first two months, that was every single day. And finally, and this was right before we hit the bite, I remember a day and I finished and I felt strong and I stood up and then I sat down and started speaking to my crew. I remember having a joke and sharing a joke and mm. I'd paddled over 100K and that had become normal by then. So it was two months to condition and I I got a little bit of sort of a niggle around Western Australia, some golf elbow. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I nailed it and a little bit of it was by fluke. I put the 15 kilos on, I estimated. Yeah. I lost exactly 15 kilos. Wow. So you were just eating in surplus like carbs and, and fats and protein to kind of put that weight on leading in? Yeah, I remember going to, I live at Mermaid Beach yeah. and Cafe on Hedges and Rafiki. Mm-hmm. I was a regular there. And I remember getting, say, I'd get lunch, so I'd get a big burger and then I'd get a milkshake and then I'd have a donut after. So it was yeah. so much fun. Yeah. I thought I was like Bridget You've probably Jones never done like, this in your whole life, eating that way. in my yeah. life, like lots of saturated fats, mm. lots of probably simple carbs, are just things you wouldn't mm-hmm. advise eating. But I was training as well. Mm-hmm. So training as well. So I was also kind of to some degree burning a little bit, but definitely in a calorie surplus. So. I feel like what an incredible experience to take into you working as a dietitian if you're ever working with athletes that want to do these crazy world records or world titles that you kind of know how to lead into it in a way that's going to protect them. Yeah, um, particularly in the cold because mm-hmm. when we got down, down to Victoria, I remember looking in and seeing the landscape change. So it went from white sandy beaches to jagged cliffs the water temperature dropped to about 11 or 10 degrees and it was single digits outside. And I think that's the other thing I always have to remember to tell people, I did a lot of night paddling. So I was Can't believe that. around 14, 16 hours a day. So a lot of it was at night. And even now when I see a full moon, it's very positive for me because I remember wow. the full moon would light up the water and I'd be able mm. to see without the moon on a new moon or a no moon, it was just dark and I just had my little head torch. So you had your head torch on. How did you know what direction you were going in? I had my catamaran there and I remember... You were just following the boat. Following the boat. And it's really funny, on the starboard side, which is the right, Mm -hmm. it's a green Mm -hmm. light. On the port side, it's a red light. 
and it was like a glowing green light. And someone said to me, long, not longer, reminds me of Great Gatsby. Yeah, I said, wow. literally, it was the glowing green light for 254 days following that. And for some reason, it always worked out that the way the wind was, it was better to stay on the right-hand mm-hmm. side of the boat. So it was just this light. And following that for 14 hours or so, when I did a lot of night paddling, it you start to go a bit crazy. I can only imagine. I'm keen to get into kind of yeah, your mindset or kind of your strategies whilst you were there. Let's just quickly talk about you had an amazing support crew. Who were they and what were their roles? Did that change at all throughout the paddle? Was that something that you sat down prior to the paddle and thought, I need these people? Or did you kind of put it out to friends and family, like who wants to be involved? How did that go about? Totally, because it was finding, and initially I thought it was going to be six months, so I told them six wow. months. But it was finding people willing to give up that amount of time, mm-hmm. and in the end it was eight months. So that's where my husband really helped. So we sort of delegated tasks. It was sort of, I'll find the boat and as much money as possible through sponsorship. Mm-hmm. I knew I was the best one to do that and to really pitch, you know, in a heartfelt way. And Matt found the crew. So the first one he found was Blake. He was an ex-auto electrician who just left the mines, bought a van, mm. planned to travel around Australia. and just He definitely got a different perspective. <laughs> totally, right, right. Yeah. Like he was on the boat pretty much mm-hmm. from day one. He just picked up a camera. So he had a passion for videography. So he cool. was our number one videographer locked in. I knew I wanted to share the journey. Mm-hmm. The second one was Ben Lavery. He's got a background in surf life saving. Matt had met him through one of the run clubs he started. Mm-hmm. And Ben was at uni online he just had the time to do it and he wanted it yeah he wanted to come for the trip and the experience and and loves wow. elite sports so he was number two and Ben was pretty much locked in to help drive the jet ski around with with Matt and was mm-hmm. pretty much yeah Matt's friend on the road for eight months and they had a great time and then the third one was locked in a week out from the trip oh my gosh um, so Jamie Sallows he worked on Elvis he's a super talented cinematographer cool. and he came along so him and Blake had the cameras he was on the boat pretty much from day one as well so these guys got me through as well as my husband they got me through I would not have finished without them mentally physically Mm -hmm. you know they got me through and there were times where everyone had their low moments for sure but we all pulled each other up you know no matter how we'd be vomiting over the side and then next thing the other person was (laughs) and we'd be there sort of patting them on the back so Yeah, it was teamwork in every possible way. For sure. Um, Speaking of the mindset that we kind of touched on before, I feel like it's probably as hard to actually put it into words, but when you're out there for 16 hours a day, are you meditating? Are you repeating a mantra? Are you listening to music? Like, are you completely zoned out just because that's what you need to do to get through it? What were some of the ways that you coped on a day-to-day basis and did that change at different points? Yeah, absolutely. So, it changed according to the conditions. When right. the conditions were flat, I loved nothing more than coming into the boat and I would talk for, I remember Blake and I speaking for 14 hours one day, you know. <laughs> the, whole the whole way. The whole way, the whole day, you know, and then Jamie and I would the next day. I loved the conversation because on your own in the water all day is so isolating mm. and you got to remember this is in shark-infested waters, so down south, known for great white sharks off Port Lincoln, out in WA, you know, 80 kilometres offshore, known for great white sharks. Are you thinking about that whilst you're doing it? Are you anxious or...? It's in the back of your mind, Mm. but when you're at sea for that long, it becomes so normalised that a pod of 70 dolphins pops up around you. It's like, yeah, that's just what happens Mm -hmm. out here. Um, A humpback whale back down the Queensland coast I was seeing 
every day. Huge wow. humbug with him touching distance oh my of these whales, hearing the whale song. Mm. It was like I became almost a part of the ocean and and my ski moves, you know, with the water 13, 14 K an hour. So I was going quick enough that dolphins were surfing the runs Incredible. with me. So when it was really our big winds, I couldn't get too close to the boat because mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. a 10 cunt cat's quite dangerous. In the flat, I'd move in and talking was my, you know, preference. But on those other days, it was all about music. I went wow. through six waterproof speakers <laughs> in the first month because they rust, rusted with yeah, salt water. Yeah. Until I found these shocks headphones, which they're designed for swimming. They are completely waterproof. I think that's the most amazing right. thing. They've got an 18-hour battery life. Mm-hmm. They're incredible. So I had them in all day. Jamie's a DJ. He loves house music. He put house <laughs> on my headphones and all day. And it was just you'd get in this sort of flow and just go and, you know, all day spend out there and not feel isolated. Whereas mm-hmm. I didn't have the music. There were a couple of days where, you know, we hadn't charged or something happened completely different mindset. Wow. I would feel frustrated and, you know, down and lonely, but having a voice in your ears is completely different. And there were times in the Northern Territory where I was lowering myself into crocodile infested mm. waters at night time. And the last thing I wanted was silence because there were splashes around. You could hear things. So I would put in the most hardcore rap music. <laughs> I would put Stormzy on yeah. every single day and Eminem yeah. just to get in that mindset, to almost get in that. like aggressive energy. Aggressive mm. elite athlete tunnel vision mindset. I wouldn't look left or right. I don't want to see what's out there. They would be shining torches to do a spot check. Oh, man. Um, I would just have these headphones in and I thought my role here is to paddle as fast as I can. All of the information we got from marine biologists was do not go slow, go quickly. Don't stay in certain spots for longer than you need. We were only anchoring for, you know, half a day in Mm -hmm. one spot because crocs observe patterns and they stalk and follow. And, yeah, they saw three crocodiles near me in the space of a week and they wouldn't tell me till I was on the boat. But you got to get yourself in a, a really different mindset. Hi everyone, a quick reminder that if you are loving this chat, I would be so grateful if you could take two minutes now to jump on whatever platform you're listening to this and leave a review or share the episode you're currently listening to on social media. I'd love to see where you're listening from. If you're going for a walk, if you're at the gym on the treadmill, if you're driving, obviously don't take a photo if you're driving. But it is so incredible to see that we now have listeners from over 35 countries tuning in and the more that we grow, the bigger guests I can bring you. I am so, so grateful that you're here on this journey with me and I'm excited about the live chats that we have coming up with some absolutely inspiring guests. Thank you so much. So the previous woman you mentioned, she had crocodiles following her. I think maybe I've got the wrong person, but someone had to end their attempt because they were being stalked. What was sort of the advice, I guess, did you speak to locals or did you have anyone that would say like, this is where it's going to be the hardest and this is how to get through it? Or did you kind of leave that up to your crew to kind of decide what was best? (laughs) Totally. So I felt confident because of the preparation we'd done Mm. for 18 months. So speaking to marine biologists, skippers, fishermen up north, you know, people who knew the area like the back of their hand, Mm -hmm. the skippers we got up there knew the Kimberley region so well. The advice we got was to stay out, stay out. It's most populated in the mangroves, along Mm. the shores of the islands. But out you get the big ones that cross between the islands. So there's really no win. But... If you do keep your speed up, you know, you've obviously, you make yourself less of an Mm -hmm. easy target. Mm -hmm. 
Some people are advising that I used a heavy plastic ski, so a 30 kilo ski. I got on and tried to use that and it went so slow. My speed was too heavy. It Mm. felt heavy and I just felt like a sitting duck. Mm -hmm. So I stayed in my nine kilo carbon fiber ski and just paddled as fast as I could. I dropped the biggest Ks of the whole trip throughout that two weeks and I was literally driven by the fear fear of the crocodiles. It was also extremely hot. So it was 40 degrees out of the water. 32 degrees in the water. So the water was like a bath. So I remember Mm, splashing splashing myself, trying to cool, but it was like bath water. So that's when I broke out in blisters all over me in a rash. Um, But I had to keep going because if I stopped, I would think about the crocodiles more. So I would literally just paddle all day, every day. And night. And and night as well. And again, Mm. when that moon came out, I could actually see and I could see islands you almost start to imagine things as well. There's logs in the water as well. So you're hitting logs and every log looks like a crocodile. So yeah, that whole two weeks in the Kimberley was horrific. But fortunately, I had incredible people around me who were amazing at motivating me, saying the right things. And the skipper knew exactly what he was doing. And he knew that the islands that were infested with crocodiles not to go near. That's really, yeah, incredible and probably life-saving for some people as well out in that area. But (laughs) Did you ever fall off, I'm wondering? So much. In that area? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I fell off my ski so much. Literally, firstly, in the middle of the areas known for sharks. Oh, no. um, In the middle of the Great Australian Bight, you know, there's can be killer whales out Mm. there, big sharks out there. And I would just fall off. And it was always when I would lose concentration. So I would have a moment, sort of brings us back to the other point where, you kind of get in that awesome state where you're not kind of thinking like it's meditative. autonomous. Yeah. Yep. But then if you went too far that way, you'd fall out of your ski because mm. a rogue wave would hit you. So you needed to find that balance of also being aware of your surroundings because a lot of the waves were breaking over the side of my ski and these things are very tippy. So I would fall out in freezing water, struggling to get back in. And I remember having moments, there was one moment in the bite and I'd fallen out. It was freezing cold. It takes 12 minutes of submersion in the bite to get hypothermia. And I was Mm. in for 10 and I just couldn't get back in my ski. And I was just trying to pull myself up. And every time I fell down, I had less Mm. energy. And eventually all I could do was just put my hands over my ski and float my ski towards the boat. They're yelling out to me. They've turned the boat around. It takes 500 meters for a boat to actually slow down in big winds. Mm -hmm. So 500 K out to sea, I've just got my hands over my ski floating towards this boat that's a couple of hundred metres away. But in the Kimberley, same thing. So in areas known for crocodiles, I would fall out and try not to splash as Mm. I got back in. So, yeah, I was falling out so much. That was part of it. But I would always try to get back in smoothly if I could without kicking too much. So It's just hard to comprehend. Like I'm sure everyone says that to you, but it's just incredible like what you managed to do. Let's talk about some of the hardest days. You mentioned the Great Australian Bite. The fact that you're even offshore 500 kilometres is hard to fathom, but I was looking at the footage and reading, I think you went through 17 days of like six metre swell, which it's two and a half weeks, day after day that you're in that. Um, You're freezing, there's storms. That's where you lose the eight kilos and you get the seasickness. Is there a particular day in the 17 days that stands out as like you did not think you were going to get through that? 
definitely was when the wind turned. So around five days in, I'd actually, we waited for the weather window and it's very rare that someone actually crosses the bight east to west. Usually the currents and the winds work the other way. But we got advice from one of the world's best meteorologists to actually go do this clockwise around the country. I was the first one to do it clockwise. Everyone had gone anti-clockwise. Why Why did they advise clockwise? So the East Australian current, literally the one off Finding Mm -hmm. Nemo, that that it moves the warm water from the Great Barrier Reef to Tasmania, we got in that and it pushed me in it a couple of weeks ahead of the record to start. Cool. I was the first person to do the bike crossing so everyone else had hugged the coast so this was doing something that hadn't been done and people were calling us crazy. There was no blueprint for it mm. and I was technically going the wrong way. But the meteorologist said, wait for it and the weather window will come and it did and I got these incredible tailwinds but five days in the weather turned and I got a headwind and I had to come onto the boat and it was what we called a lay day. But I remember laying on that boat. So you can't anchor out there. It's 3K deep. It's like being on a ride. The whole, there is, it never stops. Wow, it's just for two and a half weeks. And down for two and a half weeks. It's up and down. The boat would drift 50 kilometres away from the, the X, the spot marked on the chart plot, and we'd have to motor back. Because remember, I've got to start and stop mm. in the exact same spot each time. So on the boat, that rest time is spent just vomiting over the side. And I remember laying there and I thought my job today is to keep as much food down as possible because I need to fuel my body with something Mm -hmm. because my key role is to get us across. We can't move forward without me taking the strokes. So it was quite a burden to be Mm. in that position. I remember telling my crew, everyone on the helm, which is where you drive the boat, was able to step in when certain people were sick, someone else would step in, Mm -hmm. but there was no one to step in for me. I was the only one who could do those 100 kilometres each day. That was what the average that was required. Mm. So there were moments where I felt like passing the baton on, but then I knew I couldn't. So there was actually a time just after that, thankfully the wind turned the next day and changed to a tailwind again. And my crew saw much I was struggling and they got in the water and paddled little sections with oh, me wow. two kilometres at a yep. time and took turns. And that's where my team came into it. But when that wind turned to the headwind, I didn't think it was going to turn back around and thankfully mm-hmm. it did. But I started praying in that moment too. Yeah, I actually have that in my notes that you started to pray. You are not a religious person, I don't believe. So no. what were you praying for? I literally had never said a prayer since primary school wow. where I grew up, you know, at a Catholic school, mm-hmm. um, you know, not the strictest, but we did go to church and we did say prayers and all that sort of thing. And then I kind of moved away from that. I remember on day five when that wind turned, just looking to the sky and it wasn't even, I didn't name the greater power God mm-hmm. or anything like that, but just literally asking a greater power to look after us. It was terrifying. You don't see land for that time. You start to imagine, think you'll never see land again. And, you know, you're falling off and falling off. You're throwing up and throwing up. I remember saying, please just look after us. And almost after that, I felt more reassured. I felt more Mm. calm. And I did feel as though, you know, there was something up there looking after us when that wind did turn. I remember, I think it was day eight and starting to hear the voice of my grandmother. Wow. And that was sort of the first voice I heard out there and she was telling me to keep going, my late grandmother. And then I heard the voice of Gus Wallen from Gotcha for Life. Oh my God. And he was saying to keep going as well. And 
it was sort of like I had this help from a greater power sort of sending these people to me in that moment. Sending you messages. To encourage me, yeah. And then I would look to the boat and there was always a member of my crew watching me on Bonnie Watch all day. So I had people around me, even though I was alone on that ski, I wasn't really. And then was that something that you continued to do for the remainder of the trip? You were praying, I was like asking for guidance and support? 100% asking for help, you know, with the conditions. So the conditions were everything. I mean, Mm. if I'm paddling into a headwind, I can paddle 60 or 70K in 14 hours. If I'm with a tailwind, I can do 140. Wow, it's double. It's double, it's twice as fast Mm -hmm. and it's so much easier. So that was the main thing was I could not control the weather and the wind. I learned to embrace Mm. whatever was there. But I would go to some really dark places when that wind would turn against me and that was when my fingers would get bad too. So I was just rendered useless to do anything else at the end of the day. So you went to hospital, I believe. Was that after the Great Australian Bite? Was that like a part of the trip where you kind of thought this isn't part of the plan, it's going to set me back? Like who made that decision that you needed to go? Yeah, the crew made that decision. So... Basically, we got halfway across and they were having chats um, without me involved. They had Mm. to have the chats because they knew my answer would be to keep going about whether we actually needed to turn back. So my health... And call the whole thing off. Yeah, turn back to um, Coffin Bay from where we'd come. That Mm -hmm. was the name of the place we were from, Coffin Bay. How ominous is that? Um, And Misery Bay was the one before (laughs) it. And it's really ironic because the first sailors sailed west to east and they named these places after they crossed the bite, Misery Bay and Coffin Bay. And then it's Esperance on the other side, which to me has mm-hmm. positive connotations. So we came from those places and we were making that joke and we're like, we literally know why they called it that. But, yeah, basically the crew started chatting about halfway through. My health mm-hmm. was declining so rapidly about whether we turned back because once we got to halfway, it was obviously just as quick to keep mm-hmm. going. I was adamant I wanted to keep going. I never wanted to come out there and do it again and that was what was driving me forward. I said the only way forward is through and I thought if I can do this once and once in my life, I never have to do this ever again. They decided to keep going. If anyone did this in the future, I'd advise taking a doctor and having IV fluids. I was going to say it's incredible that you didn't have, like you were out there for eight months. Ned Brockman did his run in 45 days. He had a physio the entire way. Like yeah. I cannot believe you did not have a medical professional with you. We It showed our shoestring budget. We put all of our money in the sense. in the boat. Mm-hmm. We had no money for any professionals in anything. We had my crew was giving me massages, doing the, the cooking. Doing the, exactly. <laughs> we had all of that. So because anything that involves water and being that far out to sea, you've got to have a boat. It's your navigation as well. I absolutely wish, and maybe if I had a bit more time to plan, we could. But by the time I got to the other side, I could barely walk. I had to go straight to hospital. I remember just feeling like jelly and they just pumped litres and litres of the IV fluids into me. I got on the scales and that's when I saw I'd lost eight kilos in the two weeks when I walked out of there, I could actually walk sort of properly, but mm. it took that week really to recover. It also took two weeks to talk about the bite. So I couldn't speak about it. It was just so horrific. My lips had completely fallen off. I pretty much, my whole face was peeled off. I looked like 80 years old when I looked in the mirror and it was really, you could see what I'd been through and the crew looked the same. You could just see it in us. It sort of broke us. But when we put the pieces back together over the coming months, we were just new people in the best Mm. way possible. And I knew once we did that, that we would handle anything that was coming, which was a good thing because the crocodiles were coming a couple of hundred K further north. I cannot believe that. It's like 
as you said, it's this near-death experience almost. It takes you to the ends of where you think you can possibly survive and then you come back stronger. But I suppose like looking back on it now, is it still something that's incredibly traumatising to relive or do you feel like you have processed that in your own way? Have you spoken to a therapist? Like I'm sure there are not many people, if any, that understand what you've been through out there, but how did you kind of heal through that? I think really using the rest of the trip to debrief with my crew mm-hmm. because they'd been through it as well. And even now we still talk about it and we can't believe we did it. We look back and it's almost like looking at the footage, like it's not even us. Um, mm. But, yeah, it was debriefing with the crew throughout the rest of really the six months of the trip that by the time I got home it was just a feeling of incredible pride in what we'd done. And I think that crossing, what happened in that two weeks, set the tone for the whole trip because mm-hmm. Once we got to WA, not only were we halfway around, but mentally we were so much stronger. Physically, I was equipped. And I just, my body was that of an elite athlete. My body was conditioned to 100K a day Mm -hmm. and there was no looking back. And thank goodness we'd been through the bite because we got to the Gulf of Carpentaria, which is the other big chunk out of the country. When you first look at the map, I I literally was like, there's two problems here, this part and this part. Freya was the only one who'd cut across the Gulf. Mm -hmm. And again, she'd gone the other way. We were once again going back against the current. Mind you, we'd got the currents up the West Coast like our meteorologist said we would. And this time when I cut across, there were headwinds the whole way. There's soury, stilly trade winds that come that time of year. Mm -hmm. So I got tailwinds in the bite. Now in the Gulf, though it was less distance, this time I was into headwinds. But I used everything that I lent on in the bite in the same way in the Gulf. You're kind of like, if I've been through this, I can do it. I can do it. Exactly. And all of the little strategies that we used, you know, we didn't even bother going near solid foods. It was straight to the smoothies and the soft textures focusing on the hydration, all Mm -hmm. of the things we learnt in the bite, we utilise that in the Gulf. And mind you, I got halfway across, the winds got to 45 knots. I didn't have a say, the skipper called it. We had to bail out to Weeper on the other side. Mm -hmm. The boat had stainless steel chains breaking off. These winds were so strong. It was actually terrifying. It was the first time I actually wondered. I know in the the bite I was wondering if we'd see land, but out there I actually was wondering if the boat was going to hold together. Oh, my goodness. And this was a 65-foot yacht. So when we got to Weeper, the skipper said, I'm not going back out there. So we didn't have an option to go back out. It took me 10 days to convince him to head back out. And he looked at me and said, if I go back out there, I need you to get this done in a couple of days. There's bad weather coming. You've got three days to get across. You're going to have to paddle further and faster than you ever have. How many Ks was it to do in three days? And that's when I went back out and did a world record. I did. I did 173 kilometres in the first 24 hours and then I paddled 80 kilometres in the next. So basically um, I had to set a world record to, to get that done and I knew it and I remember getting out there, just this overwhelming feeling. It was like calm that mm. just settled over me. And it was first first a feeling of being overwhelmed, but then the calm descended on me and I thought, I can do this. And I can do this because of everything I've done in the last six months. That's what set me off. It was like the finisher out. almost. Exactly. We'll get into the end of the race or the end of the paddle. But I heard in your letter to yourself that you had kind of like a spiritual revelation, so to speak, in the first few days. What was that, if you don't mind sharing? And what were kind of any other realizations that you had about life or yourself throughout the process? I realized a couple of days in 
that I sort of looked and I had this pot of dolphins that mm. popped up next to me and it was coming into my hometown of Coffs Harbour where I grew up. And there were about 30 dolphins, some little babies, some mums. It was the most beautiful moment. And I thought, I've only ever viewed the ocean as a place to race and go fast and get the most out of myself and prep for a comp and train hard. And I thought I've never actually enjoyed the ocean in this way. And it was just this sense of freedom, complete freedom. And I thought this is what I want to make space for in my life. And it became really evident in that moment. I thought, even if I don't get the record, this paddle is about so much more than a record. Mm. This paddle is about there's a reason for doing that. That goes far beyond breaking a record that's been set. And I genuinely thought about that record about 10 times throughout the whole trip. Across the bite, it didn't even cross my mind. It wouldn't be there. No. It wouldn't be there. And um, throughout the whole trip, it became more and more clear when we were forced to disconnect and have these amazing conversations, you know, about the meaning of life and our purpose and what we want out of life and what we think about certain things and do we believe in fate or all sorts of things. Um, I had never actually delved that deep into conversations with people because there's so many distractions in everyday life. As soon as we might start thinking about that, our phone buzzes or the TV, something comes on or a car drives past Mm -hmm. and out at sea, everything is so slow. So there's no stimulus. There's no noises. Like even the squawk of a bird gives you a fright because you're so far out that it's really just the waves and the wind. So it forces you to think on this deeper level. And that stayed consistent for the whole trip. And even now I make the time to disconnect. I'll go for a walk without my phone. Mm -hmm. But most importantly, I get out in the ocean and the ocean is a place to enjoy and almost it's a cleanser. You dive into the ocean, you wash away your worries Mm -hmm. from that day and it was just viewing the ocean in a completely different way to what I'd ever known. Thank you for sharing and I think that's such a gift in life that we can do that. Like I, That's why I'm so grateful for this podcast because I meet people like yourself. We literally met five minutes before we sit down and then we're talking about the meaning of life and all these incredibly deep concepts that you just otherwise in normal life would not get the opportunity to have that barrier removed. Um, but we'll talk about the end of the paddle and also just assimilating back into regular life. I think you raised over $100,000 for Gotcha for Life. Why was it Gotcha for Life? Why was that the charity in the end that you were like, this is what's going to drive me and push me to do this? And that's the other part. I I never expected that to be my main driver. Mm -hmm. Um, As I said, I you know, was selfish before this. I was a selfish athlete. I had tunnel vision. I'm going to break a world record. All athletes are. You have to be. You have to be Mm. to reach the top of your game. So this paddle changed me in that way. Um, But when I took off, I did know I wanted to do some good with it. I would have looked into about 10 charities, Mm -hmm. but what I did know was through COVID, the statistics in mental health were rapidly increasing. Youth mental health, the rates of anxiety, depression and suicide Mm -hmm. were going up. And I found that horrible and looked into some different charities, but I'd heard about Gotcha for Life through an ocean paddling race we did. Shoreham Partners was my main sponsor mm-hmm. and they run a race where they gave proceeds to Gotcha for Life and thought, okay, I'll look into that. And pretty soon I heard the voice of Gus Warland, um, you know, talking about mental fitness and building mm. emotional muscle. And it was the terminology used around mental health that I loved. I thought that's something kids can resonate with. That's something, you know, as an athlete, I can resonate with working on your emotional muscle. And I thought that's the charity. And again, that gut feel, that's the one I want. And what I loved about raising the $100,000, it took the full eight months to do it. It massively gained momentum as I went around 
was everyone who went on to, you know, my page and saw Gotcha for Life were finding out about what they're about mm. and educating themselves on mental health. I got dozens and dozens of messages who had lost someone close to them to suicide, been through mental health struggles themselves. It was really they were seeing how vulnerable I was and the struggles I was going with and that kind of made them feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And I realised there really is that stigma in talking about it. People are stoic. They don't want to, particularly Australians, you know, in the 21st century. So it's an exciting space. There's more and more people speaking openly about it. There's more and more mentors and role models and, you know, even key figures within totally. pop culture and, you know, on, on social media speaking like this. So kids are kind of looking at that and I think the new generation are going to be more vulnerable and kind of forward thinking in that space but yeah raise a hundred thousand dollars and I can tell you when you're climbing into crocodile infested waters and I can literally envision it now it's that thought that message that you've just received from someone who's lost their daughter or someone who attempted suicide that you think if I can get in and take these first few strokes maybe that can encourage someone to keep going so yeah, I'm doing ambassador work with them now. Yeah, really it's proud of. incredibly inspiring work and, and one that I can imagine gives you real like purpose in your life that you're passing that on. But speaking of mental health, I can imagine like this is a huge pinnacle. Potentially that final day is maybe one of the best days of your life. What is that like after the fact? I think so many athletes talk about the come down and the kind of like what's next and media is asking you, what are you working towards next? And you're like, I've just done this massive life-changing thing that I potentially don't want to replicate or do again. For you, what was your mental health like after the race and what's the journey been like afterwards? I think that's such an amazing and important question because for so many of us, even people, you know, that build towards a big holiday and, and we talk about the post-holiday blues, you know, it's like anything you build towards um, the Olympics, the depression in athletes post-Olympics. And I know after the last Olympics, one athlete wrote a really moving letter about mm. it and they hadn't had the result they wanted and they said they were embarrassed to come back and the shame and all sorts of things we can feel as athletes, you know, who we're very proud of what we do and you're building and one person can get that gold medal. But in this, even though I did get that, that world record, I had lots of um, messages leading in from people who had done expeditions and broke records saying, be careful of the low, be careful of the come down. You're surrounded by this amazing team who are there for your every need for eight months. You know, it's, it's sort of all about you. You come home that team's not there anymore. It's quiet. It actually took me a couple of weeks to get used to walking again back yeah, on dry wow. land. Was I it sort of quite anxiety-inducing being around so many different sort of sensorial things, 100%, I imagine? 100%, incredibly. And I was sensitive to light. Like I would find it very hard sitting here with lights. The noise of cars would make me jump. Even crossing a road, I had to really stop and look and, wow. I, you know, getting used to the speed of cars again. <laughs> I'd had really minimal exposure to that throughout the whole way around. I hadn't driven a car for that whole mm. time, maybe once near the start of the trip. So, again, my just single singular role for that eight months was to paddle and I was kind of hadn't experienced anything else. So it was incredibly surprising at how hard it was to adjust and it took about two months, but... I managed to connect with the Mermaid Beach community, so they asked me to coach the nippers. Best thing that could have happened. It was about a couple of weeks after I got back and I really balked at the thought. I thought, mm. I, I don't think I'm ready. 
but diving back in and to a community full of people of all ages, you know, kids keep you on their toes and they're beautiful and super cheeky. They would find you very inspiring too, which would be so such a nice feeling to know that you can pass on that knowledge and those skills as well. Yeah, and it just gives you that purpose. When mm. we talk about purpose and the other part was that gotcha for life sort of rang me and said, do you want to come on as an ambassador? Awesome. So I was, I was fortunate to have those things lined up, but I was very well aware. I grabbed those opportunities mm. with both hands in the end because I thought if I don't get back into that everyday life and like you said, sort of assimilate, that's when that loneliness and depression can hit. And that's whether you've got the world record or mm. not. And it can be a very dangerous trap looking for the next big thing, right? Mm. But the next big thing was I started writing the book and that was like a healing process. Totally. And what was the process like to, you know, as you said, your husband's on the journey with you, but actually not with you because he's on land the entire time. I'm just imagining like you both sitting down to have dinner in your apartment or your house and thinking like, did we just go through that? What was the process of coming back together as like a unit and reflecting on what you'd been through? Exactly. I write a lot about it in my book because mm-hmm. it's probably, we were one year married when we did this trip. It's probably. <laughs> if you can go through that, you can get through exactly anything. Exactly. Probably the worst thing ever for a marriage, you know, being <laughs> one person's out at sea risking their life, the other one's on shore. Yep. He was super stressed for that whole time. He literally came back with grey hairs <laughs> in his hair. So I imagine you're going to great hair he actually has a few great hairs now so I feel awful but um it was like a process of yeah almost like healing for us both Mm. together as well because when I'd you know seen him on land for these couple of hours and then gone off again for a couple of weeks it was such a limited time to debrief that you know there was no real emotional connection in that time so it was kind of rebuilding our relationship as well and I decided in the book to get so vulnerable about Mm. that because I thought you know, different people who have done long distance relationships or had experiences like that where they're separated from their significant other can find it really hard. And yeah, it was incredibly difficult. And um, I had other people there for the emotional support, but he didn't really have anyone for emotional support. And Ben was there, which I was so grateful for, Mm. but I wasn't able to help him through this really stressful time. You are an incredible human. I'm so grateful that you've been able to come here and share your story so openly. So thank you. One of the last things I want to ask before we wrap up, and I don't want to take the standard angle of like, what's next for you, but I am interested to hear for a lot of people that take on these huge challenges. Is that sort of, do you like get the bug and that's something that you want to do? Like I know Ned's planning something that he's not telling anyone about. That's this huge world challenge. And I'm wondering for you, do you feel like that's a tick box for you that you've done it and you're satisfied or are you kind of thinking about these other incredible, crazy things that you can do in your life now? And again, it's it's a really good question because you absolutely get the bug. Mm. And it's like you kind of see what you're capable of. And there's kind of this little itching to see, okay, well, to like push the boundaries. More, exactly. Mm. And there's there's places in the world that people haven't paddled, you know, there's oh, no. somewhere a <laughs> You're like Antarctica. Kilometers. That's literally the one I was going to say, a thousand K further south. You know, I didn't get hypothermia technically, so I'm going to get it this exactly. time. Exactly. There's, oh, there's you know, there's places. I think what appeals to me is being the first to do something, mm-hmm. like the first to cross the bike kind of intrigued everyone because it was like, 
no one's actually done this. Is mm-hmm. it actually possible? And that's what kind of, you know, appeals to me. But one thing I do know is that I wanted to put every single fibre of my being into these projects to do this justice. Matt keeps saying, he goes, just take a moment to remember what you've done. Celebrate and, like, it. Exactly. And, you know, within a couple of weeks I was thinking I got literally the globe and sat down oh, and started no. looking. <laughs> but um, for now I thought it's getting the doco, it's getting the book out and telling my story and sharing the lessons and, you know, just sharing the lessons of how much you can learn about yourself when you go outside that comfort zone, when you trust that gut feeling, when you go for something you never thought was possible, you're not even sure it's going to work out. Take that risk and go all in and back yourself. And even when everyone around you is telling you it's crazy, if you think it's the right thing to do, you know, I always say I didn't want to get to 80 years old and regret not doing it. So at least that's, now I know. That's kind of like my why in life too. I often think, am I going to be sitting in an armchair when I'm 90 something? Hopefully I live that long and am I going to be thinking I wish I did those things Mm -hmm. if so then I need to just do them but I think what you said is so incredible I've heard people speak about you know living this life of legacy but it's this intangible thing because you actually don't know how many people you're impacting or inspiring by telling your story like your book and your docos will inspire generations and potentially people for generations and generations to come because you're you've got this world title a world record and you're the first to do it but the last thing I'll ask you before we wrap up we have a closing tradition on this podcast I ask every single guest what is the meaning of life Mm -hmm. you can answer in as many or as little words as you like but Mm -hmm. Bonnie to you what is the meaning of life I think the meaning of life well it encompasses so many things I always talk about the ocean is now my happy place and I think first of all it's finding for you that happy place or what fills your cup up in a way that overwhelms you with joy. Mm. And I think then you, it's your responsibility to spread it. So you find first what fuels you, what drives you, what your passion is, what you cannot live without and you want to chase every single day. And then you share that passion with others. For people who need it, who need that bit of a nudge or need lifting up and pulling up, I think we need to pull each other up as well. Mm. So I think there's, you know, first of all, finding what it is for you, helping others find theirs or sort of helping as many people as you can, spreading that outwards. Incredible. Thank you. I'm feeling so inspired to just like tackle my own fitness challenges, which pale in comparison, but thank you for being so honest. I cannot wait to read your book and watch your doco. Please tell people, tell our listeners where they can find you, when they can expect to see things from you and just anywhere else you kind of want to drive to. Yeah, absolutely. So hopefully these projects we're looking at around March mm-hmm. to be released. So not sure if the book or documentary will come out first. Mm-hmm. So they're both going to be a little bit different. Um, the book's more of a deep dive into that spiritual side and the doc is going to be action packed um, <laughs> around March. So Instagram at Bonnie Hancock, Facebook, Bonnie Hancock and LinkedIn as well. Basically regularly posting on there. I've got all of the videos and, and photos from the trip on there too. Some of the footage is honestly, you have to see it to believe it. Like little you and your ski and these massive waves, everyone needs to get off this podcast and go and stalk your Instagram now. It's unbelievable. Um, and you should be so proud. So thank you. Such a pleasure. Thank you for coming on Live Chats. 
Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Please let me know who you'd love to hear from next or if you have a story to share, I'd love to get in touch with you. You can connect directly with me on Instagram at Life Chats Podcast, one word. And every review and share really does help so much in the early days of building a podcast. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, please share it on social media or you can snap a pic of where you might be listening and jump onto Apple Podcasts and give us a review. I really do appreciate the support more than you know. Have a beautiful morning, afternoon or evening wherever you may be listening in the world. I'm Georgia May and this is Life Chats. Life Chats.